The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au Those of you who want to follow along or make some notes, there's a little uh, note sheet in your bulletin there. Uh, please note, it says Ephesians 2, 17 to 24. That should be Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. We're not going backwards. We are going forwards. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 17 to 24. We're going to read there to begin with this morning. Thank you very much to the musicians uh, for playing so well for us, too. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17, we'll read the scriptures together. And the Bible says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And we'll ask God for blessing on his word this morning. Father in heaven, as we come before your word of God this morning. We pray, O oh God, that you would open it to us. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what you would say. Lord, again, we ask that my voice would fall silent at the edge of the pulpit, but that your voice, through the power of the Spirit, would speak to every single heart in the room. Awaken faith, O oh God, we pray. Father, cause repentance to begin and to continue. Father, help us that we would hear what you would say and put it into action. We ask you these things, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you a context for the text that's before us. In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul has urged us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In verses 11 to 16, Paul has described the gifts of Christ given to the church so that we may be Christ-like. Apostol, sorry, apostles who wrote scripture, prophets and preachers and evangelists who preached and stood as God's spokesmen and pastors and teachers who shepherd us towards Christ-likeness. And then from 4 verse 17 onwards, he calls us individually to live Christ-like lives in an ungodly world. And in 5 verse 1 to 8, Paul again will call us to live as imitators of God, as godly and Christ-like. So how should the Christians in Ephesus, who are aliens and strangers in their world, live and relate and function in it? How were they supposed to live in the face of rank idolatry? How should they relate to neighbors and family and friends who were suspicious of their worship? who hated them for their faith in Christ? How should they live in an ungodly pagan world? How should they maintain godly biblical principles when surrounded by ungodly men and women and laws and government? How should they live in their world that increasingly threatened persecution? It was almost there, but not quite yet. How would they stand fast against a pagan culture that was striving to press them into its mold? How about us? How do we live in Melbourne, Noble Park, Springvale, 
In 2018, whether you're in Queensland or Pakenham or wherever God has put you, how do we live in this world that has a government that are turning ever further away from God and the biblical truths and turning ever more towards the ungodliness of even the ancient cultures? How do we live in Melbourne, in Victoria, where society is pushing us ever further away from God and His Word or trying to? How do we live and witness and worship in a world with ever-increasing persecution coming against Christians, both worldwide and very soon in our own backyard? How do we stand fast against a pagan culture striving to press us into its mold? All Christians living in ungodly world, whether it's the first century or this century or centuries to come, if the Lord Jesus be not returned... How are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to live in an ungodly world? Not just to stand against it, but also to powerfully witness to it of the saving power of Jesus Christ. There is an urgency for living Christ-like in the present world. We must all, all of us, be actively engaged in growing in our own Christ-likeness. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I implore you. In other words, I plead with you, I'm begging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In Colossians 1, he said it like this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, He called us to be salt to an ungodly world and lights shining on a hill to display Christ to the world as the only hope for sinful mankind. So why should we live godly lives in an ungodly world? If you were out on Wednesday night, you would have heard one of the answers to this. First Peter 2.9 tells us this. We have a great purpose to proclaim Christ's excellencies both with our mouths and with our lives. We want to live godly lives in this world. So number one, we can proclaim Christ's excellencies, all the wonders and beauties and majesties of Christ. We proclaim them to God in worship. We reflect back to the Father the beauty and the glory of God as we worship. We also want to proclaim Christ's excellencies to the world and witness. We don't want to just go out there and tell them constantly about their sin, but we want to tell them about their sin as well as about the love of a Savior and the glory and the wonder of Christ who died on a cross to save them. We want to proclaim Christ's excellencies in ministry too. We tell each other about the wonder of Christ and the glory of Christ. I love when I get together with a couple of Christian friends, and there's a few of them I know and have, that as soon as we sit down, we pass through the niceties of how's your wife and how's your kids and how's your job and all that stuff, and we dive into what are you learning from the Bible? What have you learned about Christ? What are you studying? What are you discovering? What has Christ shown you this week? And we start sharing back and forth and we witness to each other of the wonders of Christ and we, the Lord uses that to shape us and make us more like Him. But listen, we have to be living godly lives, not just with our mouths, but with our hands and our feet and everything else as well. If this world is sick of one thing about Christianity, it's sick of this. It's sick of seeing Christians who preach godliness with their mouths and live anything else but with the rest of their lives. I was driving home uh, last night, or maybe, no, maybe it was Thursday night, just thinking and, and mulling over in my mind. Ministry, pastoral ministry, what is really required of us as men who stand and preach the word of God in ministry? It's godliness above all else. I can be the greatest speaker, I can be the greatest orator, I can be the nicest guy, I can visit everybody in the book, I can do all the right stuff on the outside, but if there's not a godly heart within, it will all quickly come to nothing. As God exposes it and shows it for what it really is. It's godliness, it's Christ-likeness. There is a desperate need for us to live Christ-like lives in the ungodly world we live in. 
We want to live Christ-like in an ungodly world because it's all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, and raised again. Well, that's the why reason, and I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking the how it all works. How do we live Christ like in an ungodly world? And number one, we must put off the old man. And you can see that down there in verse number 17 to 19. He says, This I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. And then in verse number 22, he says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old man or the old self to put it off. Now, I want you to notice something. It's both a past tense and a present continuous. He says in verse 20, he says, you did not learn Christ this way in the past. In verse 21, you have heard him in the past. In verse 21, you were taught him in the past. But it's also present tense. In verse 22, it's you lay aside now and ongoing into the future, that old man. The Holy Spirit, through Scripture, is urging all of us to put off the old man because the old man has a sinful, ungodly lifestyle. And Paul expands on it in verses 17, 18, and 19 there. And we'll look at them just quickly, each one. In verse 17, the ungodly lifestyle is a, fut- is a futile mindset. You might have mind or thinking, futile mind, futile thinking. It's the idea of a mindset or worldview. It is futile because it offers no lasting hope or purpose. The ungodly life is one who has no hope or long-standing purpose. We used to joke as young men and women hanging out, he who dies with the most gold wins, right? That's wrong. He who dies with the most gold still dies. And the reality is you brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out with you. The only thing, the only thing that you can take out of this world with you is forgiveness from God and peace with God. They're the only two things I can think of that you can take with you from this world into the next We came in with nothing, we leave with nothing. The ungodly life has a futile mindset, no lasting hope or purpose. In verse 18 also, the ungodly life has a darkened understanding. It's a life unwilling to see the light of God's plan or purpose. It's a life of voluntary blindness. It's a life that loves the darkness and hates the light. Why does the world not like Christ? Why does the world hate us because we're like Christ? Because it loves the deeds of darkness and it hates coming to the light. I I probably shouldn't tell you this, but the other day I I walked into the kitchen and I opened the, the door where the cookies are kept and this little gray furry fellow shot out of the door and he ran into the back corner of the kitchen. Don't worry, he's gone now. We got him, (laughs) got rid of him. But I thought, that little guy is a perfect example. As soon as I opened the cupboard door and the light shone into that cupboard door, he realized his deeds of darkness, which were trying to eat away at the back of the cookie packets, was exposed to the light and he fled into the darkness. Well, the ungodly is just like that. They don't like to be exposed by the light and so they flee into the darkness. All joking aside, the ungodly life is a life of a darkened understanding. It's also, in verse 18, a life excluded and alienated from God. We were created, men and women, with one overall purpose, to enjoy God, to worship God by obedience and delight in God. But you know what? We've all decided to disobey God and go our own way. Disobedience of God is sin against God. When we sin, we are breaking God's commands. Any action not motivated by faith in God is sin against God. And sin separates us as sinners from God. Just as surely as the man and the woman, when the Lord God came down to the Garden of Eden on that terrible day, he cried out from a distance, where are you? Did he not know? No, of course he did. He knew exactly where he was. But the reason he called from a distance is he could not bring his holy presence close to them, lest the holiness of God and the righteousness of God strike out against them because they had disobeyed God's command. There was a separation there set in place. The sin that we commit alienates 
alienates us completely from God. The ungodly life is a life cut off from God and fellowship with God. It's a life that leaves us unable to enjoy and delight in God, the very thing that we were created for. In verse 18 also, the ungodly life is a hard-hearted ignorance of God. It's not merely an innocent ignorance. Like when you go to school for the first time when they start explaining algebra, right? Who remembers algebra class in grade 9? Who failed algebra class in grade 9? Who failed it four times? No, no, just kidding. And they put up on the board and they said, here it is, you know, A squared plus B squared, YX over C to the power of 10, 11. What? I thought 1 plus 1 is 2. I got that part. Where did this A plus B nonsense all come from? And that was an innocent ignorance because I just didn't know. But if you told me over and over again that 2 plus 2 equals 4 and I steadfastly refuse to admit and know that truth, that would be a hard-hearted ignorance. I'm refusing to know it now. I know it's true, but I don't want anything to do with it. It's an ignorance that is in them because they will not see God. Remember Thomas? He walks into the upper room. All the disciples are there. He looks at me and says, you know what? Unless I put my hand into his side and put my fingers in the nail print of his hands, I will not believe. It's not that he was doubting. He was refusing. Unless I see the body, I won't believe. I love the grace of the Lord Jesus, hey? He comes and says, Thomas, see here, put your hand in my side. See here, put your hand, your finger into the print of the nails in my hands or the wrist. And Thomas sees him and he falls on his knees. My Lord and my God. Confronted with the reality of who God truly is, then he believed. But these ungodly men are hard-heartedly ignorant of God. In verse 19, it's an ungodly life as a callous life. Tony and I are both carpenters, and over the years we developed toughened, hardened skin in our hands as we handled tools and chisels, and I worked in cold weather, and you got terrible calluses and rough hands from just from working. And after a while, you could take a light feather and drag it across my hand, and I wouldn't hardly feel it. My wife used to laugh. I'd go up to her mother's house, and I'd grab hot pots out of the oven, just grab them with my hands and put them on the table. And she would flip. Oh, you burn yourself. No, my hands were so calloused and toughened from the work I was doing, I didn't feel the heat of the pot and put it down. I was trying to impress Heather, too. Who are we kidding? But at the same time, I didn't feel that, that heat. And that's exactly the point he's trying to make. Listen, these men have a calloused heart. They won't hear what God is saying to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. They push against it to that pushing back. Where is it hardened? And all of a sudden, the soft, gentle voice of God's pleading no longer can be heard. And it takes a much more severe method of God to gain their attention. Because it's an ungodly life, it's a futile, dark, and ignorant life. Because it's an ungodly life, it's a God-hating existence. Because it's an ungodly life, it brings God's anger and God's wrath. But listen, people, God designed and created us for so much better than this. We've all gone our own way, but nobody said it was better. We've all gone our own way, but it takes us further away from God. The world has this crazy idea that all roads lead to God eventually. No. There is one road that leads to God. All other roads lead away from God. We've gone our own way, but it only takes us to God's wrath. For the Christian, this ungodly life is no longer ours. We did not learn to live Christ-like in this ungodly way. We've heard the gospel. And maybe you're sitting here this morning, it's the first time you've ever heard it. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ loved the world so much that he came and he gave his life to pay the penalty for your sin, to bring you back to God, to reconcile you to God so that you could put away this ungodly life that's futile and dark and hard-hearted and ignorant and callous and you can live a life with God knowing peace and forgiveness with God. The gospel call to leave this way of life and follow Christ. The gospel calls us to be born again from this ungodly life. I heard a story about George Whitfield. 
he was always saying, you must be born again. He kept preaching it over and over again. And one day a lady came to him and she was so frustrated. She said, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep saying you must be born again? And Whitfield looked at her and he said, my dear lady, it's because you must be born again. And he kept saying it. And that's the call of the gospel, but it's not a call to be born again and live just the way we used to live. I see on signs and I cringe when I see it. Come as you are. Yeah, we come to Christ, but we are radically and powerfully changed by the gospel. If we come as we are and stay as we are, the gospel has not had its work. Grace has had not had its full effect. We come and we are changed by the gospel. The gospel calls us to be born again, born anew. We must remember that we were once ungodly as we are now believers, but we have been washed and sanctified and justified. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. Is he saying that if you're a drunkard, you can't be saved? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying those who persist in drunkenness and show a lifestyle of addiction to something called alcohol and choosing to be drunk, of men and women who have a lifestyle of fornication, men and women who have a lifestyle of homosexuality or theft or covetousness. We can breeze over those the, the previous bit, but what about covetousness? Those who have that lifestyle cannot inherit the kingdom of God as they are. They must be changed. They must be washed and cleansed by Christ and be born again to a new hope. And Paul says in verse uh, 10, I believe it is, such were some of you, but... And we can praise God if we're in this part of the verse, but you were washed... You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. We've been called out of that ungodly lifestyle. We're to put off the old man. Putting off the old man is part of the ongoing life of sanctification. That means being separated to God. We must no longer walk in this ungodly way of life. We must consider ourselves dead to it. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, listen, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also, that's us, once walked when you were living in them, but now... It's the same idea again. But now you also put them all aside, put anger aside, put wrath aside, put malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Put it off. That's what he's saying. Now you say, how? Okay, I get it. I'm supposed to put the old man off. I get it. I once walked like that. Now I want to follow Christ. How am I going to put that old man off? How many has ever struggled in this room as a Christian to put off the old man and walk to follow Christ? I struggled with that for years. I still struggle with it. You know what else? Paul struggled with it. The apostle who wrote these things, he actually wrote of his struggle in Romans 7. But there is a way to put it off. If you're following along in your notes, there's a couple of spaces to fill in there in the sheet. Number one, we put off the old man by the power of the Holy Spirit. We hear the Spirit's call to put off the old man. We cry out to God for help. Apart from God working in us, we can accomplish nothing for God. So we cry out for Him for help. We resolve. We determine. We consider, as he says in Colossians 3, to be obedient to God and not repeat the sinful thinking, actions, and habits. It's the power of the Spirit of God that gives us this ability. Listen to what he says in Romans 8. For if you are living according to the flesh, in other words, in agreement with the old man, you must die. But if by the Spirit, 
you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So how are we going to put off the old man? By the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest things they said in the gospel in the Pentecost morning is, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen, do you think for one split second that you accomplish one millimeter of journey in this Christian life in your own strength and in your own power? Forget it. Won't happen. It's the power of the Spirit of God living in us. So I hear the gospel call. I read it in scripture. I hear the the spirit of God calling me in the depths of my heart. Nelson, you need to put this off. And I resolve to do it, crying out to God for help. And I take a step in the right direction. And I'm amazed every time. I don't know why I'm amazed every time. I should know it's going to happen. But every time I do that, the spirit of God gives me the strength to take those steps to put the old man off and to follow Christ. Paul says the life of godliness is to be followed by putting off the old man and putting on the new. We resolve in obedience. Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13 says this. uh, Listen. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? That's God calling you to put into action what he's telling you to do. Work it out. Four, and he explains it. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the greatest, one of the greatest verses in the Bible. You say, why is that? Because it's God who is calling me to obey, and then it's God who actually works right in the depths of my soul to both will and to work. You have a desire to follow Christ? Guess what? You didn't put it there. Jesus did. You have a desire to be obedient, put off the old man? You didn't put it there. Jesus put it there. And not only did he put that desire there, he's also putting the strength to start doing that walking, whatever it is. Whether it's a habit you need to quit. Whether it's an ungodly lifestyle. Maybe it's an ungodly lifestyle of homosexuality. Maybe it's an ungodly lifestyle of adultery or fornication or something else. Maybe you are living in disobedience to God and you know it from Scripture. And God is powerfully impressing upon your heart. You need to stop. Whatever it might be. And the beautiful thing is, when He gives you the command to stop, He also gives you the power to obey and follow. It's faith Sorry, it's in the power of the Holy Spirit and it's in obedience to God's work. There is a third way, but we're going to come back to it at the end. The act of putting off the old man and putting on the new man declares Christ's greatness. We put off the old man to put on Christ. That displays to God that we love Christ, that we know our ungodly life is displeasing to Him, that we are submitting to Christ in faith and love. We put off the old man to put on Christ. It displays to each other. When I see my Christian brother resolving to walk in a godly way and following God and living out that godly lifestyle, that inspires me, that moves me to go, you know what, I want to be like that. I don't want to be this half-hearted, mediocre, wishy-washy Christian. I want to be one of those on fire for God, burning out for God Christians. And I see another believer living like that, and it moves me to do the same thing. So when we resolve in the power of the Spirit of God and obedience to God to put off the old man and put on Christ, it displays to each other our love for Christ and desire to please Him. It also displays to the world. The world loves conformity. The world hates it that Christianity is so different to them. You know why? Because our difference condemns them for what they do. So when the world sees a young man or a young woman or an older man or older woman who chooses and resolves to live a godly lifestyle, it confronts them with their own sinfulness and tells them there is a way to be set free from it. So we put off the old man to put on Christ, to display the beauty and the glory of Christ, to confront the world, not always with words, but often with powerful actions that we will not be a part of that. We will not take part in their ungodly activities. 
Living Christ-like in an ungodly world result, sorry, requires, number one, putting off the old man. Number two, it requires we must put on the new man, put on Christ. If we attempt to live Christ-like lives merely by putting everything off without any attempt to put on the new man, we'll inevitably fail. Quit trying to be a monk. It just doesn't work in the long haul. It's not enough to just put off the old thinking habits and actions. They must be replaced with new thinking, new actions, and new habits. Notice what he says in verse number 24, and put on the new man. Again, it's both past tense and present tense. In verses 20 and 21, we should have learnt at our conversion to put to turn from our old sinful ways and turn toward Christ to put off the old sinful ways in repentance. We put on the new man with new ways by faith in God. In verse 24, it's a present tense continuation. Verse 24 says, and put on the new self. That means the new man, the new Christ, if you like. We started this walk of faith following Christ by faith. We're putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And we continue through this life of faith doing the very same thing. So... What is this new man? What does it look like? Well, in verse 24, the Bible says the new man is created according to God. That means it's created by God in God's likeness. God created us in his image and likeness in the very beginning at creation. Morally like God. The Bible says that we were upright. But we have sought out many devices for ourselves. We've gone our own sinful way. We were created like that when we sinned and fell in a sinful lifestyle, and then when we have a new creation, it's created in the likeness and image of God again. In verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, the Bible says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We're created in Christ Jesus by God Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says this, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This new man is created by God. It's a gift of God. It is also like God. This new man we're putting on is Christ-likeness. The new man, in verse 24, is created in righteousness and holiness. Because... It is a creation of God. It bears God's ethical character. The new man is a righteous man. He has a right standing before God. The new man is a holy one. We're called saints. It's a term that we don't use as much anymore. In the old brethren circles I walked among for many years, they called saints. Saints gathered to the name of the Lord. Do you know what that means? It means those who are called to be holy. Those who are set apart to God. The new man is created by God and it's characterized by righteous living and it's characterized by holiness. Now you say, where do we gain this righteousness and holiness from? We're new creatures created by God in Christ Jesus. Christ's character is applied to us as part of a new creation. This is how the gospel works, okay? God reaches down in grace toward us. We will never, ever reach up to God on our own. God calls us to believe through the gospel message, and he gives us the faith as a blessing so that we can respond to God. We reach up to God as an exercise of that faith. If you sense God reaches down in grace... And he imparts the strength for us to lift up our hands. And then he grabs a hold of that hand. God then clothes us. As a response of that faith, he clothes us in Christ's righteousness and holiness and declares that we are right in his sight. Okay? The new man that we are putting on is something that we were clothed with when we first turned to Christ. But the practical outworking of that is an ongoing process. I asked you last Sunday, I think it was, who watched the wedding, the royal wedding, right? The archetypical fairy tale love story. Rich, young prince marries foreign American girl and brings her to England. And they have that beautiful scene. She walked down the aisle on her robes and everything. And she is married. 
at the moment of her marriage, there is something that happens. There's a transaction that takes place, and she goes from being Meghan Markle, American actress, to being, I think this is right, Her Royal Highness, is that right? Yeah, Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not a royaler, but that's good. I got that part right. So she's got transformation. They confer, confer on her, they endow her, they clothe her with a title and a persona that she now has to live out. She walks back down the aisle. She's no longer Meghan Markle. Now she's Meghan Windsor, I believe, the Duchess of Sussex, Her Royal Highness. Meghan doesn't go back to America, get back on the TV set for Suits and start acting the part again on Suits, the TV show. She's now Her Royal Highness. She has to live out that persona, that title that she's taken on her. She now has to put in effect and live it out. She doesn't get to live any way she likes ever again. That's permanently changed. It's exactly the same way with you and I on an infinitely greater level. She went from actress to princess. We go from sinner to saint. We go from God-haters to God-lovers. We go from walking against God and hating God to walking with God and loving God and loving Christ. It's a massive difference. And the new man is something we're clothed with the moment we believe in Christ. But then we spend the rest of our days living out that truth, that reality. We are new creatures created in Christ. We're clothed with Christ's righteousness. We must also actively put on that new man. We must practically live out what we have become by faith in God. And if you compare... The ungodly lifestyle in verses 17, 18, and 19 there with the godly lifestyle, you think about it this way. We now live with purpose and hope instead of a futile mindset. We now live enlightened by God instead of in a darkened understanding. We live in intimate fellowship with the living God day by day instead of an alienated and excluded and cut off from God. We live in a new heart knowledge of God instead of a hard-hearted ignorance against God. We live now fully for God instead of given over to sensuality and impurity and greediness and the other things. But remember, putting on the new man is an ongoing thing. That's why he says in verse number 24, and put on the new self. Keep putting it on. And the question you're all asking is, How? How do I keep putting on that new man? Putting on the new man requires faith in God. Number two, it requires obedience to God. It's by faith that we're saved, trusting God to keep His promises. It's by faith that we exercise obedience of putting on the new man. It all sounds so nice and kind of abstract too, right? It sounds kind of mythical. Well, there's a reality to it. What does it really look like to put on the new man? Look at two verses to give us some idea. Hebrews 12 verse 14 says this, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. The new man created in God, created like God, lives in peace with God and man. And by faith in God, I pursue, I strive to live in peace with all men. In other words... I do all that I can in an effort to live in peace with men. At the very same time, I'm trusting God to bring that peace. Two people in a dispute, right? And one of them resolves, I'm going to live at peace. I'm not going to carry on this dispute any longer. And they resolve before God in the power of the Holy Spirit applies here too. the power of the Holy Spirit that they're going to be at peace. They're not going to be the ones that are constantly sowing discord and stirring up trouble and and opening up the fight and punching each other in the head and all that sort of stuff. They resolve to live in peace, trusting God that He will bring peace and the power of the Holy Spirit will enable them not to retaliate, not to kick back, not to fight back, but to live at peace. It's both an action And it's trusting in God and the power of the Holy Spirit to do those things. We put it on. We pursue it. He says, you pursue peace. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8, the Bible says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In other words, we know what the scripture says about sexual purity. And we resolve as newborn Christians, as growing old Christians, however long you've been a Christian before, you resolve before God that you will not live in sexual immorality or impurity. You resolve to abstain. I won't have any more to do with that. You do that trusting God for the strength to abstain. You do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting that He works. He will give you the power to say no. And he will give you the strength to walk away. So it's a combination of our striving and God's working in us. It's Philippians 2, 12 and 13 all over again. For it's God who works in you both to will the desire and to work the doing of what you're supposed to do. The new man created like Christ lives in personal holiness and purity and sexual and otherwise by faith in God. I refuse to submit my mind and my body to impurity. By faith in God, I refuse to transgress and wrong my brother. I do all that I can to be pure. At the very same time, I am trusting God to bring, to transform me into a peaceful, godly person. We put on the new man. Number one, by faith in God. Number two, by obedience to God. And the third way, again, we'll see in a minute. I keep promising that there will be a third way. Well, here it is. It's point number three, in case you've already figured that out. To live Christ-like in an ungodly world is to put off the old man by the power of the Spirit, by obedience to the Word of God. To live Christ-like in an ungodly world is to put on the new man by faith in God and obedience to God. And the third way is this, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Notice 4 and verse 23. He says, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay, it's a passive infinitive verb. You say, oh, Greek grammar, who wants to know it? Not many people. Why do, you know that? Why do you want to know that? It simply means this. The act of being renewed is not something that you do. It's something that happens to you. Okay, It's the very same construction in Ephesians 5.18 when he says, Be filled with the Spirit. It's not something that you do. You don't fill yourself with the Spirit. The Spirit of God fills you. It happens from the outside in. So somebody else does the action of renewing and filling you. The Holy Spirit of God works on our hearts and minds and attitudes to renew them. You say, well, but Paul gives us the command, you be renewed. And if that's something that happens to me, then why doesn't he just pray that the Spirit of God renew us and leave us alone? The reality is there is something that we do to enable the Spirit of God to renew us. How does the Spirit of God renew our minds and our attitudes? And there's two well-known verses that show us how. Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Bible says this, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but, same idea again, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the other part, goes like this. We all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Okay, So we put off the old man by the power of the Holy Spirit, by obedient resolve not to live like the old man, and by being renewed in the spirit of our minds. 
How are we renewed in the spirit of our minds? By being changed from the inside out. How are we changed from the inside out? By beholding the glory of the Lord. Say, now, why didn't you just put it in the order Paul had it? You know, put off the old, be renewed, put on the new. I did in the order I did this way for one simple reason. I wanted us to finish on this point. The key to the Christian life is Christ. It's beholding the glory of Christ in everything. We're renewed as we behold the glory of Christ. We put on the new man by faith in God, by obedience to God, and by being renewed, by being transformed from the inside out, by beholding the glory of the Lord. Listen, this Christian life, it is all about Christ. It's all about beholding the glory of Christ. It's all about being changed from the inside out by the power of the living God. And as we're being changed from the inside out and we're seeing the scriptures and they're calling us to put off the ungodly ways and we resolve in faith and obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit to stop living the ungodly way and start living the godly way, the power of the Spirit of God as we behold Christ. Think of it this way. Walk in this way, in an ungodly way. Not that you guys are ungodly. But you walk in this way, in an ungodly way, and you hear the call of the gospel. You take your eyes off of that way. You turn around, and you look toward Christ. And when you see the glory of Christ, you turn around. You walk away from the ungodly way, and you begin to follow towards Christ. And the whole time you do, your eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. That's how this Christian life has lived. It's faith. I trust God to keep His promises. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives me the strength to turn around and walk this way. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that says, put off those old habits and those old ideas, those old thoughts. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that says, put on the new man. Pursue peace. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't covet all those other things. Enjoy God, but it's all as we see Christ. The whole key to this Christian life, the more I study, the more I read, the more I talk to people, it's this. It's seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. It's beholding the glory of Christ and the Spirit of God as we focus our eyes and fasten our eyes on Christ. He works in our heart to transform us and change us from the inside out. Paul said it so well in Romans 12. Don't be conformed, don't be jammed into a mold, but instead be changed from the inside out. So as the change happens, it's from the core all the way out to the outside. It's all about Jesus Christ. When we focus on Christ, we realize the futility of ungodliness. When we focus on Christ, we see the darkness of life outside of Christ. When we focus on Christ, we see the horrors of life lived, excluded and alienated from God. But when we trust in Christ, we know the peace of forgiveness. When we trust in Christ, we know the joy of peace with God. And as we follow Christ, amazingly, we'll begin to see peace with our other fellow believers. Yes, the world will still hate us. In fact, it'll hate us more and more the more we follow Christ, the more we change to be like Christ. When we focus on Christ, we see the joy. We experience the joy of new life in Christ. When we focus on Christ, we see the glory of His righteousness and the beauty of His holiness. When we focus on Christ, it becomes so much simpler I'm not going to quite say the word easier, but it comes so much simpler to put off the old and put on the new and follow Christ. So what do we do with all this? What do we take home with us? Number one, remember the unbelieving life is a futile, darkened, ignorant, and alienated from God. It offers nothing but an empty grave and the wrath of God. Remember and trust and focus on Christ who died to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. He rose again that we might be declared right. He poured out His Holy Spirit on us, the greatest gift of the covenant and the gift 
over the Holy Spirit that we might be empowered and enabled to live this life. He clothed us in his righteousness. You know what? As an aside, the older I get, I begin to look back on my own life and I see the way that I used to live. And sometimes as, as you get close to the Lord, the little things get a little bit bigger in your life. In other words, you see the little sins that you thought weren't so bad maybe five years ago, and all of a sudden you begin to realize that they're just as bad as the big sins. And my own sinfulness starts to wear down on me. But you know what else? The grace of God gets that much greater and that much more powerful and that much more glorious in my sight. Wonderful grace of Jesus reaching the most defiled washing and transforming us and making us sons and daughters of God. He poured out His Holy Spirit on us that shows us our sin. But I love the way He does it. He doesn't just open up a big movie screen and pour out all your sinful acts on the screen and you're confronted with every sin so it's overpowering. You just scream and run away. He lets you see bit by bit in grace that you might put off those sins. You might put to death those thoughts, those habits, those actions, and follow Christ. He works in us. Praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit that is working in you and me, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Not one single thing that I do for God is my own initiation, my own idea, my own effort. It's all of God working in me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. He works in us by the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out into the image of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, glorify the Lord in all your living. Why? How? Putting on Christ so you can reflect Jesus' image to the Father. We're mirrors, if nothing else. Christ in us, and we worship, we lift up our hearts to worship, and we display Christ to the Father. And He sees the glory of His Son, and He's pleased in that. We put on Christ so that we can reflect His image to each other in ministry. And we put on Christ so we can reflect the image of Christ to a world that's lost. It's too easy for us to stand back with our arms folded and say, well, we're saved. We're going to heaven. Sure good, but those poor wicked sinners, feel bad for them. No. Never, ever let that be our attitude. Let it be our attitude that we are wicked sinners, but we're saved by grace. We step outside of this building that we might share the gospel with anybody who will listen. And even if they won't. We glorify Christ by putting on Christ for worship, for ministry, and for evangelism.